Spring planting is getting close for many producers across the nation. And for many growers, the urge to get to the field can be very nerve wracking. In this episode, we talk to Judy Moen, a seed specialist from Pennsylvania. Judy shares some tips about planter preparation and covers some of the little things that growers can do, which will pay off at harvest time. Plus, Jody Lawrence joins us from Nashville to provide some insight on the latest USDA planting intentions report and how the decisions from OPEC to cut supply on oil production will impact growers in 2023. Finally, agronomist Keith Mock from Nebraska will share some planter prep tips as Plant 23 gets underway across the fruited plains. Stay tuned for this episode of FieldLink. Joining us today on FieldLink is Judy Moan. Judy is a seed specialist for Helena based in Pennsylvania, and she covers Maryland all the way up to the Canadian border in the Northeast United States. Judy, welcome to FieldLink. Hey, great to be here. Thanks for having me. We're excited to have you uh, here joining us today on the Field Link podcast. And, you know, Judy, uh, this seed planting season is right around the corner. And in some parts of the country, we're already rolling. But for a bulk of the country, boy, we're just a few weeks out. And it's that funny, awkward stage right now where growers are chomping at the bit. I saw a couple of uh, planters rolling down the road here. I think they were just testing things out. But, boy, as we get close to really getting serious about planting, I'd like to take a little time for you to share with us some tips for growers here as we enter that planting season. But before we deep dive there, let's take a couple seconds here to get to know you a little bit better, Judy. Tell us a little bit about you and where you're, where's home? So I live in Pennsylvania, um, Southeast region, I would say. Uh, I've been with Helena for just about a year now and have a background in agronomy myself. Um, I've got two dogs and a cat, but lover of all plants, so... Can't be more excited to talk about agronomy with you. That's awesome. And and let's see, you help me out. You studied at Delaware Valley in Pennsylvania, and then you worked in independent research for several years. Correct. Yeah, I got a degree in agronomy at DelVal, um, and then I was in the private sector of doing crop consulting work. Great. Well, I'm sure things in Pennsylvania are like they are across lots of the country. I know they're still getting some snow in the Dakotas and Minnesota. It's it's definitely wet in certain parts of Iowa. Uh, I know here in the deep south, uh, we're, we're getting lots of storms. I know everybody's getting storms, you know, hit and misses here and there. Um, but, but Judy, I bet a lot of your growers are chomping at the bit ready to start planting corn soon. Yeah, like you said, everyone, as soon as they see that first corn planter roll out of the barn, it's like, what is my neighbor doing? And I have to be doing the same thing. Uh, I will say, however, there is definitely some steps you can take before you even pull that thing out of the shed. We have so much snow going on throughout the Northeast where I'm located right now. Everything's muddy as all get out. But if your driveway is open, you've got the ability to calibrate some stuff and get some things ready to go for the actual season before you get in that field and actually put your money where your mouth is. <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. And it doesn't take a whole lot of this prep time. You know, I'll call it, you know, this primer time is a great time to double check some of those things on those little things that really can impact your yield and the performance of, of your hybrids, you know, as you get into season. Let's talk a bit about some of those little things. What are some of the things that are top of your mind, Judy, as uh, growers ought to take a look at as they get into uh, preparing for planting? Well, no one's going to know your farm better than the grower themselves. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. But you should definitely be looking at your equipment because that is what is setting you up in the first place to do any of these things. I would definitely take note of how old some of the equipment is that you have, how old some of the parts are, or what the wear and tear is on them, and then see what your seed size is, whatever you got in the shed for that year. Um, Take a look at that stuff. Make sure that your discs or your vacuums or whichever your finger meter that you're using is set up and ready to go to actually place that seed the way you need to be doing down in the field. Yeah, I think that's a great point. You know, a little preventative maintenance now. Hopefully you took the time over the winter time and put things away the way they should be. But, you know, even sitting in the shed over the winter thing time, uh, things can kind of get knocked around a little bit. And now's that great time to really be testing out those brushes and, like you mentioned, the, the vacuum. 
And if you've got a driveway, you can you can do a lot of that. Is that right, Judy? Yeah, it's exactly right. Now, in my region in particular, a lot of people rely on their equipment dealer to come out and help service their stuff out. But if you don't have access to that or somebody in your phone book that you're using for that, you can do it in your driveway just as easily. Um, you can be testing out what your actual calibration of seed placement is, as well as the calibration of what your starter fertilizer insecticide that you're putting out at the same time. And that's a really simple concept when you really think about it. And that's as just as easy as setting your planting depth to zero and just riding out about a hundred foot. You can take a look at what your seed spacing is, or if your disc or your meter, your vacuum's having any type of trip up from unit to unit across the board. Yeah. And I think by doing that, like you mentioned in the driveway to kind of see some of those spacings when you can at the end, walk out there and visually see what happened it really kind of cements some some truth of what could really be happening in the soil because once we, once we hit the real field, it's go time. Yeah, exactly, and that's the last place you want to realize that you're having an issue on one particular unit. And this could be something as simple as te- checking that disc opener to see if there's any type of wear or excessive issues that's happening there. Um, a real easy test that I learned a t- long time ago was just taking a piece of printer paper. And sliding it up between each one of those discs and marking exactly where it's opening on each one. That can be a difference of opening a furrow up from a quarter inch to a half inch to even over an inch across the field on each unit. And that is something that I think is overlooked very easily, but can save you in the long time with making that initial furrow opening in the field. And those little things like that truly make a difference come harvest time. And, and, and we're often taken for granted because once that seed hits the soil, there's really no going back, is there? Not at all. I mean, you have to let it up to Mother Nature at that point or whatever herbicide applications or extra nitrogen that you can put out there in the field. But if you can ensure that placement is there to start, you're doing, you're doing half the work that you can do. Yeah. And speaking on that, um, the biggest thing that I would say, at least in my region, besides just that initial furrow opening is checking that planting depth as well. Um, You want to be making sure if you're going from the driveway test to then testing in the field, that initial run about 100 feet as well, you're getting out of the planter or you're having somebody out there behind you opening up those furrows and taking a look for you. No, that's, that's a great point. You know, taking that time, once you do hit that field to get out of the tractor, go walk with a partner if you can, maybe one of your coworkers, uh, you know, family member, what have you, uh, maybe you're Helen, a sales rep, uh, and dig around and, and, and really get an idea of what's going on behind that planter is really critical. Yeah, exactly. It can even be your kid running behind you just to have them out there with a piece of stick or something or a pocket knife, just to open up that furrow and see what your placement's like. In my neck of the woods, we like to see corn planted from anywhere about an inch and a half to two and a half inches. In these colder, wet soils earlier on in season, I like to see it around that inch and a half mark. But the further deeper you get, um, the more somewhat inconsistency you can get with emergence. The same with if you go any more shallow than an inch and a half, you're going to have some root mass issues underground that you're going to have to fight with later on. Yeah, that's definitely a great point. And, you know, clearly that's going to... uh, uh, Trend, depending upon you where you're at, depending upon your CEC scores and in the soil types and so forth, uh, it's really important to really have a good handle on seed depth. It can truly make a huge difference. Of course, moisture impacts that. Lots of things do, uh, but really having a good plan there is really important. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and that can change from field to field. Just like you said, that CEC is going to make a difference. The soil type, the soil texture, what's going on in that field. All of those items are going to have a different play. I mean, everyone wants to think it's so simple when you're doing these driveway tests or anything like that. But you do have to realize when you're even switching from field to field, you might have a different density in the soil or you might have a different moisture content. And you have to play with it a little bit more, either putting more down pressure from the planter or loosening it up just to make sure you're getting that depth that you're looking for in the field. That's awesome. And uh, Judy, you know, uh, we talk a little bit about, you know, mechanics and making sure that things are teed up pretty good there. And, you know, we've got our brushes and our fingers, all, all that working well. Uh, we, we've just covered a little bit about, you know, seed depth. But, you know, 
See, uh, speed is also very important. And, and, you know, as things kind of drag out, I know a lot of producers up in the north right now looking at a lot of snow and moisture on their fields and they're chomping at the bit, I'm sure. Uh, and going, boy, this thing's going to get compacted. I just, if I just kick it up another mile an hour, uh, I can cover some more ground. Tell, t- t- what are your thoughts around the speed as far as planting is concerned? Speed can be tricky. Everyone wants to get the corn in the ground as fast as they can. They want to make sure they're hitting that window exactly when they can to make sure they got their crop in the ground. But you got to be careful. Just like you said, if it's wet out there and you're kicking, say, seven to eight miles an hour, if that's what your planner's rated for, and you notice when you turn around that that furrow is not closing off, you have to understand that maybe you've got some wet conditions out there and you need to slow down a little bit. And the same part about that, even if the furrow is closing and it's a little wet, you can be making some sidewall compaction that you're not aware of. And you're only going to be aware of that is if you jump out of the planter and open that furrow up. That sidewall compaction can cost you yield in the long run that you might not always account for, but you should be aware of those issues that can happen depending on how your planter is set up. Yeah, that's a really great point, Judy. It's important to jump out of that tractor, you know, that first several hundred feet or so and double check that sidewall compaction, depth, all of those things, because boy, you don't want to, you know, plant 80 acres and all of a sudden find out, wow, I've got this going on. And again, there's not a lot going backwards uh, after that point, is there? Not at all. You you definitely want to be able to catch those issues in the first couple acres before you have 300 acres in the ground and go, whoops. <laughs> that's an expensive whoops, isn't it? Oh, exactly. And that's not always talking about that seven to eight mile per hour range. If you have an older planter or any type of setup that might be rated to four to five miles per hour. Even though you're going slower, you can have the same issues you're going to have at that top speed. So a lot of it comes down to just seeing the type of farming that you're doing, what your rotation is, seeing what things you need to change up to make that planting happen the way you want it to happen. Right. And you bring up a great point there. Every farmer's different. Every field's different. And, you know, we've got a lot of growers that are doing, you know, conventional tillage, but also no-till. No-till can certainly, you know, impact your speed and your depth a little differently, can't it? Yeah, exactly. Now, there's a lot of different stipulations or says out there or switching to no-till can hinder your yield the first couple years. But I think a lot of that has to do with those initial change-ups or learning how to plant that no-till way. Um, you might be switching from doing some row cleaning to less row cleaning or more aggressive row cleaning on the planter. You might be switching from a press wheel to more of a spike wheel closure. Those things all play into the fact if you're switching up from conventional tillage to no-till that sometimes get overlooked and you can't always overlook those things. I think that's a really great point. Um, uh, certainly, you know, understanding no-till versus conventional till and other types of tillage. Understand your tillage and be sure you're testing, you know, that first, like you said, two, 300 feet. Uh, as you transition into those parts of different fields, be prepared for those transitions. Judy, uh, t- let's talk a little bit about, you know, certainly it's going to be go time soon for a lot of producers, but some of the little things that we often overlook for those of us that have seed tenders, what are some basic things we need to prepare for in terms of handling our seed? Well, I would start off with saying, did you clean out your seed tender? Is there any type of old seed hanging out in their dust or bird's nest per se that build up over the winter time or heck even mice that you didn't want to really be in there. Make sure you have that all cleaned up. You don't have any dust or debris in there. Um, Blow it out really good, wash it down, make sure it's nice and clean to go for the season. The other thing I would definitely say is make sure the motor is running well on it. Uh, Make sure you're cleaning up that carburetor, whichever you need to do. Just make sure you get the old gas out of there and make sure it's all in running order so that that is one thing that's not gonna delay you when it comes time to go. Yeah, that's that's one of those things where, oh, dang, I forgot to do that. And uh, and it can be really frustrating and put you behind by an hour, two hours, three hours, and all of a sudden, 
Now you're kicking up that speed and you're impacting your overall yield because a motor or a carburetor wasn't cleaned out or you had bad gas or a bird's nest, for God's sakes. And it's very common. It happens a lot. So taking a few moments to really uh, prepare those seed tenders is really, really important as growers get ready for uh, spring planting. Uh, Judy, what are some other things that folks ought to look for as they get ready to crank things up here this spring? One easy thing that I think that anyone could do really is as we're all getting super excited about when the go time is, you should be checking those weather patterns that were happening right now. We all know that whenever we're going to have that full moon time of the year, we're going to get our lowest spike of the temperatures for the most part. You should be aware of when that's going to happen in the month if you're planning to go out in these early cold timings. Another thing that's really easy to do is take that meat thermometer out of your kitchen, take it out to the field and throw it in the ground. Read what it's saying. Look at it at 8 o'clock in the morning and then maybe look at it again 2 o'clock in the afternoon. It's ideally, I think most people say, 50 degrees. I like the, the general rule of thumb of 56 degrees. You know, if you got 56 degrees, probably not slipping below that maybe 48 degrees in the early mornings or at nighttime. And that's just one easy way to get an idea of, hey, I do think it's go time. If you're getting those temps holding for two, three days in a row, sure, go ahead, throw some seed out there. Yeah, I think seed temperature is a really great point. Uh, often we, we base everything as producers off the calendar and, and, and our neighbor. Um, that's not always the best solution to see what our neighbor's doing. Uh, but really utilizing those thermometers to really understand our soil temperature and then really starting to manage our, our growing degree days is also very important. Uh, Judy, as we take a look at 2023, and, and in every geography is different, clearly you have a good uh, handle on the northeast part of the United States, but as we start to look at seed supply, and if we're looking at the calendar and in some parts of the country, snow still covering a good portion of it, and things start to get pushed and pushed and pushed, when do growers need to think about yeah, I might need to move to plan B as it relates to maybe a different hybrid selection, something along that line. Unfortunately, as all years go by, we tend to see that seed supply gets tight. Seed supply across the country is going to be tight, whether you ordered a variety and you ended up not getting it and you got allocated to something else. This happens. This is things we have to deal with and we have to flex with. Now, as far as when you tend to push back or when you tend to decide to move to a different hybrid or variety, that really is going to depend on where you're located and what maturities you generally grow. I would say if we get pushed back, if you're looking to go about that third week of April point and you get rained out for, say, three, four weeks, which can happen, you should start looking to pivot to something that's maybe five to ten degrees or different maturity down. Yeah, and, and it's going to, like you mentioned, it's going to be different no matter where you're at. And uh, some of those geographies are a little bit different. I don't think there's a silver bullet statement there. It's going to be case by case. But I think the important thing is to be aware. Be aware and, have, and, and be working closely with your Helena rep to better understand what's available and what, have a plan. Hopefully you don't have to go to that plan B but at least be having the conversation so he or she can, you know, be working with their seed suppliers uh, to, to have a plan if we do need to make an adjustment. Yeah, exactly. Like you said, your Helena rep should have a good idea of what he's going to have as floor stock if you need to swap anything out. He should have a good idea of what the suppliers have that you might be purchasing your seed through as to what you can move to if they don't have that in floor stock. Those are conversations you all need to be very, or your dealer will be, transparent with you on and you should be transparent with them on that as well and, tr and trust in your Helena rep to get you those answers that you need for your for your operation. Yeah, that's really great advice there, Judy. Judy, um, really want to take this opportunity to thank you for joining us today here on FieldLink. Uh, are there any last minute things that growers need to think about as we get ready for this planning season? Hey, for the 2023 planning season, let's 
have all good thoughts and it can only go up from here, right? That's right. And I think it's uh, it's going to be an exciting year. There's a strong demand for uh, corn and soybeans based on the recent reports coming out that Jody Lawrence is going to talk to us about later today. Uh, from the USDA. So lots of opportunities there. Uh, Judy uh, Judy Moan out, out of Pennsylvania, uh, seed specialist for Helena. I want to thank you for joining us here today on Fieldlink. All right, Judy Moan, I want to thank you, seed specialist out of Pennsylvania, covering the Northeast United States for Helena. Uh, I want to thank you for joining us here today on Fieldlink. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. It's been a great time. And at this time, we want to welcome Jody Lawrence from Nashville uh, with the Strategic Trading Advisors uh, to give us a commodity update. Jody, we've got a tremendous amount of stuff going on right now in the grain markets. Boy, bring us up to speed. What's going on with the USDA and the latest uh, planning intentions report? Well, Bill, it's good to be back and welcome to April for everybody. It's uh, I'm glad to be back at my desk full time now that we have finished up the meeting season with everybody getting ready to start planting. And some of you are already underway that I've spoke to uh, over the past week uh, in, uh, in some of the drier central locations of the country. So uh, remind everybody, be extra careful. Uh, good luck this year because it's uh, this is always a dangerous time in our business and I want everybody to be uh, around uh, for the summer in a healthy way. But uh, I guess really the better question, Bill, is what's not going on in our markets because we have had uh, any number of major market moving events that by themselves could take up a podcast. But by the time you throw in Last Friday's USDA stocks and acreage report that showed tighter quarterly stocks than expected and definitely was supportive to old crop prices. And uh, you got the acreage shift that a lot of people thought, and there were an extra four to five million acres that are expected to be planted this year in the U.S., uh, with, nine, with the early estimates from the USDA at 92 million acres of corn with 87 and a half million acres of beans. And those are uh, higher than what the final numbers were for last year for both. But there also, there is a, a fairly lengthy history of this report being uh, pretty inaccurate by the time we get to June and, by, and certainly by the time we get to January of what the final numbers are. And this is not really the USDA's fault because from here forward, it's all about Mother Nature. It's all about spring weather. It's all about rain and how many of these acres actually do get under till. And is there, you know, a shift, some of those corn acres, because it gets a, it's a little too wet too long, that they shift to beans, or, you know, do more cotton acres go to beans or corn? And uh, with cotton uh, price struggling, just a lot of dynamics as we move forward. And uh, if we thought the winter moved quickly, it's just uh, it, we're about to hit warp speed on the spring and we'll be to Memorial Day before you know it. And with the uh, planning updates and early crop development, uh, going to be a really, really busy and also, it's an exciting time of the year because this is, you know, it's the gentleman start your engines uh, start of the Indy 500 season. Yeah, definitely. I, I just uh, was in Nebraska this last weekend and saw my first planter moving down the road. And I think people are just doing some recreational driving right now. To keep the neighbors <laughs> all fired up. But, uh, uh, certainly, uh, uh, it's that time of year. And, you know, back to that report, you know, looking at some intentions on corn, uh, looking at some of those states, Jody, that looking to have some real big growth or anticipated growth, uh, specifically the Dakotas and Minnesota, looking like some big growth opportunities there, at least projected. Uh, but they're sitting under a whole lot of snow right now, aren't they? Yeah, that's certainly an issue. And I typically don't start uh, ringing the alarm bell on late planting on late planting in the U.S. simply because technology has gone so far, and the farm community in general can get get in so many acres in such a short period of time. But if it's uh, under snow cover, if the ground's too cold for proper germination, you know, in a seed bed, and then on the backside of it, once the snow starts to melt, you have flooding and just poor conditions. Uh, it, I'm going to give it about two more weeks before I start to have some larger scale concern. 
But the areas that you mentioned that do have the heaviest snow cover right now are the areas where the USDA expected to pick up corn acres. So that goes back to my thoughts that the uh, report we saw Friday with 92 million acres is really just a starting point that we have a lot of decisions that will be made mainly uh, by uh, the weather in the next uh, six weeks, if that number uh, finishes at 92 or it, it uh, pulls back towards 90, because we've talked about this before, uh, you know, a, a bushel or two on final yield, certainly it matters because it becomes, you know, it's, you know, 80, uh, it's 90 million bushels on ending carry out or on or off of it. But when you start moving around a million or two acres, it becomes a much larger number. And, you know, if you lose uh, 2 million acres of corn, and if we just get back to where, what we planted last year, uh, all of a sudden you take uh, potentially 325 to 350 million bushels off corn ending stocks that it's hard to believe are tighter than where we were at this time last year. So uh, a lot of things, a lot of interesting things going to happen and the area and, and my main focus is going to be the area where the expansion was expected uh, are, have, are seeing the, the worst early conditions right now. Jody, let's uh, transition a little bit to uh, some of the latest news also last Friday and over the weekend. Boy, it really exploded and here Monday morning of the 3rd. Our friends at OPEC, uh, they, they made some choices here recently and some announcements. Uh, bring us up to speed with the oil world. Well, uh, I had been warning everybody in all the meetings that we did at all the retail and wholesale locations for Helena uh, over the past three months and also on the podcast and in the newsletter that OPEC was not a friend of 70 uh, you know 70 75 dollar a barrel oil and it was just a matter of time before they surveyed the landscape and raised their hand and said, uh, we're going to cut some because we're a bigger fan of 90 to 95. And that's exactly what happened. It, honestly, it took them longer to uh, make the cuts than I expected. I, I really thought this would happen when the price started settling into that 68 to $72 range. But they waited patiently like they can do, being, you know, being basically the oil cartel. And now all of the oil and energy uh, information that I read today is pointing towards uh, crude oil going to $90, $95 during the peak of the U.S. driving season as uh, a majority of the major OPEC countries, Saudi Arabia uh, and the other, you know, major major uh, producers are all in agreement to make these cuts. And when you start talking about a million barrels a day, it 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 adds up pretty quickly. And you can see that today you had crude oil at one point trading up uh, almost six dollars a uh, a barrel, uh, back over eighty dollars to eighty one sixty nine was today's high in the May. And just uh, two weeks ago, we were trading at $64. That's a substantial rally. And when you get into this position, uh, it, it, the ripple effects just go through everything uh, it, in both positive and negative ways because you've got diesel that I hoped every, I hope everybody was able to top off their tanks before these announcements came. Uh, but it also supports the bean oil, uh, the biodiesel, and corn for ethanol. So it, it, it's it's not really a double edged sword, and I think in in the big picture, the U.S. farmer would rather have the uh, the sixty to eighty cents added to their bean price and uh, forty to fifty cents potentially added to their corn price because of high energy prices and pay a little extra at the pump. So it, it's always a balancing act. Uh, on the bottom line in American agriculture, but ninety five, ninety to ninety five dollar a barrel crude would certainly be beneficial for the U.S. renewable fuel markets. Yeah, definitely the biofuel market going to be a winner out of this uh, decision by OPEC. Uh, definitely going to potentially drive some more demand, specifically for soybeans, and you know justify some of those. 
crushing plants that we've talked about on future our earlier podcasts, uh, Jody. Yes, and they're uh, they're coming online. I've got to do some research this week to get everybody some updated numbers, but we know that over the course of the summer we are going to see a huge spike in bean oil demand or in bean demand to crush for the bean oil as these renewable biodiesel plants come online. Jody, let's talk a little bit about Russia. You know, we haven't talked about Russia here for oh, you know a couple episodes, but they're back in the news again. Uh, what's going on uh, over there as it relates to grain? Well, several things and going on in Russia, and I can't remember uh, if we spoke about this last time, but the export corridor was extended till May 18th. Uh, I guess it was two Saturdays ago with that meeting, but Russia only expected extended it for two months. The previous two extensions had been for four months, and the two months comes with an interesting, a couple interesting hooks in that if uh, the U.S. or if Russia decides to end the humanitarian export corridor in the middle of May, that's really right at the beginning of Ukraine's winter grain harvest. So you can imagine with no ability or a very uh, compromised ability to export it outside of going on rail through Europe, uh, you really could have the wheat market uh, become very dynamic if Russia were to do something. And I, and you don't, you, you can't really say uh, that this is a bad sign, but over the last week, you've had Cargill, ADM, Viterra, which formerly Gavilon, and uh, let's say Louis Dreyfus today is pulling out of managing the grain shipping facilities on the Russian ports, and they're going to let uh, domestic Russian uh, operators run those. And whether uh, it's some of the you know their their billionaire sect is the oligarchs, and the ag oligarchs are thought to be moving in to take over those facilities. But are they going to be run as efficiently? Uh, it, it, only time will tell. But if the cost of insurance and the cost uh, of insuring a boat and all the other troubles continue to the summer, then you you really have some. We could go right back to square one where we were, uh, you know, the first month after the invasion, trying to figure out what the world wheat supply and demand and shipping situation looks like. Tremendous lot of movement happening there, clearly in Russia. And as the war continues, certainly impacting that. But boy, it definitely could impact global wheat prices here in the next 30 to 60 days. And uh, stay tuned is probably the big message there. Uh, yes, I would definitely agree with that because we have got a huge amount of moving parts uh, to watch You know, over the course of the next uh, you know, gosh, just six weeks to get to that middle of May deadline. Well, Jody, we touched on it a little earlier, weather certainly impacting uh, planting on some parts of the nation. But, uh, you know, we're still having a lot of weather events all over. Uh, this last uh, weekend, uh, we had 69 tornadoes touched down in 10 states from Georgia all the way up into the Wisconsin area. Uh, boy, certainly impacting a lot of growers across that country. Yeah, and your heart goes out to everybody because they're just so devastating and they're uh, just seemingly so random, just, you know, uh, not even talking about the, the you know, destruction of property, but uh, all of the people that have been affected through the storms all through the southeast and uh, Midwest. It's just uh, it's, spring is always a terrifying time when you're in the in the middle of one of those big storms. Yeah, definitely. And uh Definitely, uh, uh, you know, we talk about the storms, of course, but, you know, snow certainly in the north, in the northwest also, in the wheat market up in uh, Montana and Idaho, uh, definitely a lot of things slowing down uh, some of the production up there. So uh, it's still early, but, uh, you know, something for all producers to keep their eye on, keep an eye on this weather here the next 30 to 60 days, definitely going to impact probably some grain markets here. Jody, let's talk about South America. What's going on down there as it relates to harvest? Well, Brazil's bean harvest is pushing past 75%. Their yields are large as expected. It's not the largest per acre 
uh, yield they've ever seen, but with the expanded acres, it is expected to be a record crop. Argentina's weather is becoming less impactful simply because they're so late in their growing season. You think about where they are in our normal time frame, add six months to April 3rd there and their October Third, there's just not a lot you can do to to benefit a crop at that late stage. So, Argentina's harvest is going to be starting pretty pretty quickly in the next couple of weeks, and then we the world will get an idea of just how much loss there is. There still are a lot of estimates for several of their ma- major growing provinces that they will see 50 to 60 to 70 percent loss in those acres from the, uh, you know, just from the devastation of their uh, 2012 type drought. So, uh, and, you know, that's just another one of those moving parts that we have as we go forward over the uh, you know, heading towards uh, Memorial Day, that we'll get updates uh, on on both harvest in Argentina from the Buenos Aires Grain Exchange, and also uh, from Brazil, uh, from Conab, and so that just a- adds a you know few more levels of drama to everything that we have to keep uh, keep in touch with. But uh, uh, and an awful lot of things going on now and. Fortunately, uh, for you know, uh, margin, uh, bottom line profitability, the markets are trending to look. Uh, this se- seasonally, this is the time of year where you usually get to see a good month, six weeks of supported seasonal rallies. So I'm optimistic about what we're going to see uh, through April, and hoping for some really solid pricing opportunities. That because uh, I don't think we've seen the highs for the year just yet. Well, so the theme there is stay tuned. More to come. Uh, keep your eye on the ball. Uh, get 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 those planners ready. Be safe um, and uh, just stay close to the markets. Uh, stay close. If you need help, uh, folks uh, can reach out to you. Uh, how should they reach out to you, Jody? Everybody's always welcome to call me at six one five nine four eight two three seven eight, or you call me or Brady. And we'll be happy to talk to you and help you. And for all the Helma customers, happy to uh, and wholesale customers get you signed up for the newsletter at this important time of the year. And then my email, jblawrence at comcast.net. Feel free to email me any questions, any concerns. And I'll always, now that I'm uh, back anchored to my desk and not on a flight or in a rental car, have plenty of time to answer. That's awesome. Jody Lawrence, want to thank you for joining us here today to give us a commodity uh, update uh, from Nashville. Uh, We look forward to chatting again on our next episode. Thank you, Bill, and wish everybody a happy Easter. And welcome back to FieldLink. Uh, Now joining us from Lincoln, Nebraska, is agronomist Keith Mock. Uh, Keith, welcome to FieldLink. Oh, thank you, Bill. It's good to be joining you again and talking about uh, what's going on in the field. Hey, it's uh, it's April time. I I was actually in Nebraska last weekend. I saw my first planter of the year traveling down the road just outside of uh, Palmyra, Nebraska. Uh, Keith, what's uh, what's really going on right now across the state uh, in Nebraska and Kansas and in your region? So I get down into uh, Kansas a little bit south of Marysville, and they're they're starting to put a little corn in the ground, uh, starting to. Try out that planter, make sure it's it's going to work properly. Nebraska, just a little here and there. Again, just more of the get it out of the shed, get it hooked up, get it ready to go. Um, conditions are, are good, but I think uh, ground temperature is holding us back just a little bit, Bill. Yeah, so it's that time of year. It's kind of that uh, everybody's chomping at the bit, ready to go hit the fields. But there's some preventative things, some things that we need to think about as producers uh, before we really get going and rocking and rolling to tackle plant 23. Uh, So, Keith, what are some basic things that, you know, growers can think about as they're preparing to go to the field with their planter uh, this spring, yeah, uh, just general maintenance that they've probably been uh, doing or have done or in the process of doing. Um, the planter, you know, you get you one time really to get this properly planted, the corn and the soybeans, and and uh, so making sure that you, you know, you 
you, your seed, you get the seed drop to where you need it. Um, and as far as like testing that, keeping it uh, on the on the driveway or some hard ground, uh, putting it down to scratch the surface and and drive about the speed that you're going to drive to see what kind of seed drop you're getting, uh, just to make sure that's working properly before you hit the field. Um, and also, if you're using any kind of infurrow or over-the-top starter or two-by-two, two, uh, you can turn that pump on and make sure that each tube is uh, dribbling out the, the amount of fertilizer that should be dribbling. Um, I say dribbling because it's usually not very high pressure back there. Uh, but make sure that the tubes are, are flowing so that when you do get to the field um, and, and you do your maintenance check there, you knew that it was working before you got to the field. Right. Now's a great time to check those little things out uh, uh, that, that can really be big things. Uh, you know, you don't want to get ready to go, have all those ideal uh, conditions in the field and then be held up by, like you mentioned, a plug nozzle or, you know, just being off an, in your calibration. Um, Keith, you know, uh, as we kind of progress, we've done all of our checking. We, we've really uh, done a good job of preparing our planter. You know, we worked with our, our dealer and our Helena representative to make sure everything's, you know, ready to roll from that perspective. Let's move to the field or just getting ready to, like you mentioned, some of the growers down in Maryville, Missouri, uh, are, are, are starting to go and do a little testing. What are some things we can do during that test phase that can eh, just, you know, help better dial us in? The Bill, I can't tell you the number of times, no matter whether it was 30 years ago when I started or just last year, that somebody would get a newer planter, a, a trade, or get a brand new planter, and it's, oh, it's okay, we're, it's set, ready to go. And get to go out the field, and they take off, and they start putting corn or soybeans in the ground. And because the monitors say everything's just working hunky-dory, and all of a sudden somebody comes along and says, uh, you're not planting deep enough. So my suggestion would be, even though we've got all this uh, monitors and, and bells and whistles, get out of the cab after a couple rounds. Make sure you're getting the singulation that you want, that, uh, you you know, get it spaced properly. Get the corn in the ground two inches. And uh, there's a number of reasons why, and this, this is too short a conversation to have, but plant your corn at two inches and uh, get good seed to soil contact. Make sure that true V is closing. Um, you may have to set your press wheels uh, differently. Uh, make sure that uh, you're not causing some issues with sidewall compaction. If that's the case, then you're, it's a little early. You better stop or move to a different field with better conditions. But just make sure that the equipment that is there is working properly with seed placement, depth, and closing, and com and the closing wheels are, are giving us good seed to soil firm contact. You bring up a great point about conditions. Field conditions can vary from north to south, east to west, but even in the same area, uh, from field to field, different soil types, textures, you know, trash can be very different. So understanding those soil conditions is really important. Sure. You, you can't, even though you're, you know, start on Monday, uh, you can't plan everything on Monday. It takes a while. And so by the time you're, you move to the next field or the, the next day, the next two days later, field conditions can change dramatically. And uh, the, the other thing you want to make sure is you, I think you talked about trash, cut through the trash. That's what that true V is opening that, that opener is for, or your trash uh, whips. Make sure they're getting that product, the trash out of the way so that your planter can can work properly. The last thing you want to do is just push that trash into the ground as opposed to cutting. It's called hairpinning. And that's typically uh, means that you're not getting the seed soil contact, whether it be corn or soybeans, and uh, can cause some, some emergence issues. And we all know that we want our crop to come up within 72 hours, uh, no later than that, uh, a, a full emergence. And that'd be ideal, uh, whether it be corn or soybeans, everything come up together. That, that, would, be, that would be the goal. Yeah, because, uh, you know, some of the research done, you know, if those, 
if that crop does not come up, you know, at a uniform pace, now we've got competition. Uh, the, the, those little seeds now become competitors of each other uh, and, and, and rob from nutrition as well as sunlight. You're right. They, you know, whether it be, uh, again, when I started or even way back years and years ago, it's, it's always about competition for uh, space, for nutrients and moisture. And if you've got everything playing on the same uh, level playing field, you're set up for a, a even uh, growth, even development, even uh, production of seeds uh, the best we possibly can. When you start varying that, um, then we've got issues uh, not being able to reach its full potential. Well, and, and really understanding, the, again, going back to the word conditions, field conditions, uh, ensuring that you're getting that trash out of the way so you're not doing things like hairpinning and getting the proper seed depth based on your CECs and different soil types is very important. In your case, you mentioned in, in Nebraska, two inches seems to be the good standard for a lot of growers. Some others, it might be a little bit shallower, but uh, two inches is a good number. Um, and, and making sure things are coming up consistently. So the other thing I'd want to point out is is temperature. And Anymore, uh, we plant based upon, you know, are the conditions of the soil ready to go? And that's, you know, that's what we do. Our, our pharma, farming operations are large enough now that you really can't wait for that optimum soil temperature. But 50 degrees is the, uh, is the cutoff there on corn. Anything below that, we're, we're, not, uh, we're not germinating at the pace we'd like to see. Uh, the other thing that you want to watch out for is any moisture that that seed imbibes. I'm talking corn now, but any happens in soybeans. The moisture that imbibes the seed initially gets that seed to start to swell and germinate. If it's below 40 degrees, um, you can impact the, uh, the germination um, and you can actually uh, have uh, plants that, that don't even, they leaf out underground, they, they curl up. Uh, it's, it's not great conditions to take in that moisture when it's below 40 degrees. That's um, when you get those temperatures down like that, and they're and then you couple with pink kind of wet, uh, which it is in a lot of parts of the many parts of the country right now. Um, boy, that's that's just sizing things up to be pretty dangerous and putting a lot of pressure on on that uh, seed to really utilize its internal energy before it can really emerge and take advantage of that sunlight. Right. If the conditions are good and you're planting, but um, your weather forecast says, and you know. And the next day you're going to get uh, you're going to get some snow. Uh, maybe maybe you ought to wait. It, it's good to get stuff done, and and as as growers get bigger, you know we got more acres to cover. But boy, it can kind of creep up and bite you. It can be a silent killer, can it? In many cases, in terms of yield, replant does not make anybody any money. So let's do it right the first time, the best we can. You bet. So Keith, let's uh, let's let's move forward a little bit. You know, we're out there in that field. Uh, you know, we 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 we've got our planner all calibrated. We're doing well there. Let's talk about seed and seed treatments. What are some What are some of your quick pointers here as we take a look at twenty three? Well, um, you you know, obviously uh, fields are different. So you know, select the proper hybrid and the proper hybrid variety for the area that you're planting. Um, I'll leave that up to the professionals at your location that are working with you on, on your seed selection, your hybrids, and your varieties. But when it comes to treatments, uh, you know, it's been shown that, you know, with our earlier planting dates, uh, we're exposing that seed to more uh, disease and, uh, and some insect pressure. So seed treatments that uh, provide that protection against those early season diseases, against the uh, insects that are there, what we call sometimes the secondary insects. Um, that Those are very important. And uh, so that's pretty much standard anymore in corn uh, and soybeans. Uh, and, but the new thing now that we have, uh, we're working with here at Helena is a product called Fastand. And uh, we put that on the seed. It's a fluency agent. So it Man, it, it works wonderful for allowing that seed to flow properly, not not bridging up 
in the in the planter or in the in the seed box, and uh, helping with getting that singulation that you uh, that you need, keeping it spaced properly. The other thing that uh, it brings is the and this is the major portion of of what we're bringing is the uh, ability for that plant to develop what we call the SAR technology, the self-acquired resistance to uh, insects, uh, like uh, say a nematode. So it gives us a little bit of suppression there. And then root development, uh, spurring the development of those early season roots to get that plant off and growing in, uh, in the conditions that it's in. Yeah, Fastan's been around a couple of years, and boy, we've had some really good luck, especially in your market with Fastan. Uh, as you mentioned, certainly aiding in, in as a graphite, basically a replacement, but boy, uh, the technology packed inside that product really does enhance uh, the performance of that corn. Absolutely. The graphite and, and talc, is, uh, it can get a little messy. And this is number one, less messy. <laughs> and uh, what we find is the people that the growers that give it a ch- chance and a, give it a trial, they uh, they say, okay, that's it. I'm switching everything over, uh, and I'm going to start using this fast stand on everything. Yeah, definitely uh, talk to your Helen representative about fast stand as you're uh, going to your fields this spring. Uh, it's a uh, it's a very simple process, just a, a small scoop uh, on top of every box, and, and, and you're good to go. And as you mentioned, uh, it, it, it's pretty simple in the wind. You know, unlike graphite can really blow in the wind, talc for sure. And, uh, yeah, this is a good good, good opportunity there. But more importantly, beyond that, it, it, it has some serious opportunities to enhance uh, early early stage growth for that corn. No no special equipment needed, and, and we have documented or looking at somewhere in that 500 extra plants per acre, uh, which then contributes to a little bit enhanced yield down the road when you have more plants that survive and grow and are uniform. Everything that we've been talking about up till now, we, uh, we see a benefit there. Again, a simple uh, effects and boy, if you're seeing 500 plants per acre, that certainly equates to yield at the end of the day. So it's all about, the number of seeds per acre for sure. Um, Keith Mock, uh, any other last minute planting tips as growers get ready to roll uh, here this spring? Well, just a, just a plug for the Helena locations that you work with that uh, they've done a nice job of getting the seed into the, into the shed and getting it ready and uh, uh, making sure you're in contact with them and helping, allowing them to assist you in, in the placement of that, hybrid or variety in, in the best possible scenario. And uh, if, have, if you run a couple uh, a couple fields short in your calculation, make sure you talk to the Helena folks. I'm sure we'll be able to help you out. Keith Mock, agronomist in Lincoln, Nebraska. Keith, uh, thanks for joining us here today on FieldLink. And uh, we appreciate all that you do to help growers produce a more profitable crop. Glad to be here, Bill. Look forward to doing this again. I want to thank you all for joining us here on this episode of Field Link as you get ready for Plant 23.